Welcome to Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. I'm your host, Tim Friedman, along with rock expert Frank Ost. Frankie, how are you today? I'm great, and it's great to be here. Season 5, Episode 5, we're going to talk about the Monterey Pop Festival, which oh. happened in the middle of June 1967. One of, artist. one of the great uh, pop festivals kind of set the bar for pop festivals to come, like Woodstock. For future ones. And this mm-hmm. had a, a kind of a positive note as opposed to the Gimme Shelter one, which we talked about in the past, which wasn't so positive, was it? Yeah, and also it was a more... Um, because the the grounds that they had it on were limited capacity, it wasn't that crazy kind of Woodstock feel. It was actually people that wanted to come and listen to music. Yeah, you know, they had the Newport Jazz Festival mm-hmm. every year, and so the Monterey Pop Festival, this was before Woodstock, and things were not as crazy with, i got to have a great festival. Exactly. Kind of so we'll talk about that a little later on. First of all, March 14th, Today in Rock History, 1963, Frankie, Jerry, spelled with a G, and the Pacemakers released their first single called How Do You Do It? I like Jerry and the Pacemakers, actually. Me too. Yeah. Tula Clark performed on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1965. And I never realized that she was quite a bit older than that generation. I never knew knew that, but I, I looked it up not too long ago, and I was surprised to find out that she had a good 10 years on... Just about anybody yeah. of that of that generation. She probably yeah. sang downtown. It was a little early for my love, but yep, yep. probably downtown or something like that. Mm-hmm. 1972, Carol King won the Grammy for Album of the Year for Tapestry. No surprise. It, no surprise. The 14th annual Grammys. Henry Mancini, when they st- first started giving out Grammys, like in the early 60s, they didn't have any statues, any of those little, you know, um, Gramophone. Oh, yeah, the uh, like the RCA Victor thing. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have any giveaway, so they kept having Henry Mancini bring whatever ones he, he won back to the venue. He won like five or six by then. Just oh, yeah. He passing he, his out. He owned Grammy er, yeah. in the early days, sure. So they said, Henry, can you bring like the six, eight Grammys you have from your... <laughs> <laughs> and he'd bring them every year, and they'd hand out his Grammy as a, a you know, a, a prop, put it backstage and left stage or stage right, and... Then they'd give the real one to the performer later on. Sure. Yeah, what a, what a different world it was, <laughs> truly. Eric Clapton was admitted to the hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1981 in this date after an attack of bleeding ulcers. He had mm. to cancel his 60-date U.S. tour because wow. of it. A new rock band called Metallica made their live debut at Radio City Hall in Anaheim, California. I like Metallica. I don't love them. I like them. They've had some good moments. No they doubt. have. Ray Charles made his first solo TV appearance in more than 50 years on this date in 1998 on the QVC Network. Oh, of all things. He was peddling something, I guess. Birthdays. Albert Einstein, born in 1879. Les Brown, without his band of renown. (laughs) He was born in 1912. Quincy Jones turns 89 today. Remember Michael Murphy, now known as Michael Martin Murphy? He's a country star, but he had Wildflower and... Caroline in the Pines back in the 70s. Okay, yeah, I think I do remember He's him. 77 years old, as is Walt Perizader of Chicago. Oh, my goodness. How old is he? 77. Oh, Lord. He's still in the band? I think what they call him is kind of one of those, like, uh, emeritus uh, positions oh, yeah. where that when they do something big or maybe have a big shows or something like that, he'll show up. But uh, as a regular... No, he does not tour with them as a regular. Anymore. Well, he can see 80 right around the corner. Absolutely. Billy Crystal was born in this date in 1948. Rick Dees, remember Disco Duck? The <laughs> Who could song? forget? Rick Dees, famous <laughs> DJ, born in 1950. Time for concert calendar. Frankie. Ooh, I love this part. The Eagles are coming. Um, uh, St. Patrick's Day, that's this Thursday. Boy, it. it Went fast, didn't it? It did. I cannot believe that we're already St. Patrick's Day. I've looked at some uh, weather forecasts, and it looks like it's going to be like 70 degrees that day. So the Eagles will have a wonderful day to be in town. There won't be any kind of delays or any kind of snow problems. They'll definitely be able to get their concert. And the parade, unlike a couple years ago when it was canceled. That's right. I think it was last year. It might have been pared down, or I don't know if they even had a concert. uh, parade last year. I don't either. I can't remember. But this year, not only will it be a Thursday night, it'd be great weather, and then some of the partiers will be going over to the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse after it be a raucous night. Absolutely. I think downtown will be on fire on Thursday. I, you can 
plan on that. <laughs> not to, yeah, not to mention March Madness really kicks off Thursday. Exactly, and and we didn't even I didn't even think of that, but March Madness will be there too, so they can come down and watch the parade, go someplace, sit in a bar, and then go over to see the the uh, show. Wow, that sounds like a good idea. Sounds like a good night. <laughs> Tickets still available. If you want to do something different, you can head to Northfield Park for the MGM Center Stage Tower of Power. Same night, Frankie. Mm, uh, love Tower of Power. Seen them a couple of times. Um, and, of course, as anybody who listens to this show knows, I even had them up for... Uh, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame consideration. In our uh, Two Should Get In category. Yeah, absolutely. They're a terrific bunch. And I know you're not going to see the original players, but they always put on a good show. And uh, we're going to do our Two Should Get In. going to bring that back, not this week, but next week. Yeah, that'll be Do fun. a few rounds of that because I think a few of our artists still are getting snubbed. They definitely are. And there just seem to be more that you kind of, uh, when you look into them and you say, oh, my God, I thought they were in. in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You like the band, the group Straight No, Sh- no Chaser, correct? Yeah, they're a lot of fun, and it, uh, one of their uh, songs made my Christmas yes, top it ten. <laughs> it might just uh, again this year. MGM Center Stage on Friday, the 25th of March, Friday night. Oh, I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah, that should be a good show, too. At the Kent Stage, Graham Nash has added a second show. Saturday, the 2nd of April, Sunday, the 3rd of April. Two nights for mm. Graham Nash. Wow. English Beat, Ken Stage, Wednesday the 6th. Daryl Hall, Todd Rundgren, you know, the buddies from Philadelphia, both Absolutely. now in the Rock Hall. MGM Center Stage, April the 7th. Donnie Iris and the Cruisers, Ken Stage. Boy, they have some good shows coming up, don't yeah, they? Yeah, and I think what you're seeing now is finally, uh, the, now the Omicron thing's kind of settled down, I think finally people are starting to really go on the road. Lindsey uh, Buckingham is going to be back, but that's Ken Stage show has been sold out for a while. Exactly. Amy Mann. Till Tuesday. Fantastic stuff. Kent Stage. Paul McCartney's going to begin his Got Back North American tour. First date scheduled is for Spokane, Washington, of all places. Good grief. And he is 80 years old this year. He's going to do 14 more places, but nothing close to Cleveland. Syracuse, New York, which is another kind of an odd venue. But, I mean, nothing in Columbus. That is. Must be playing like, what is it, the Carrier Dome? Or used to be called that. That must be where he's playing. So he's going to do like 14 North American dates, wrapping up just before he turns 80. Oh, jeez. Journey in Toto. Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, Saturday, May the 7th. And Mark Cohn, you know, he won a Grammy for Best New Artist way Absolutely. back when. Absolutely. Kent Stage, on May the 14th. Earth, Wind, and Fire, jumping ahead to the last part of July. That'll be at the MGM Center stage on the 30th. Should be a good show. Oh, absolutely. They always put on a good, good show. Also at Blossom, Sticks, REO Speedwagon, and Loverboy, June 1st. Sammy Hagar, George Thoroughgood. You want to rock out? Should be a good show. Yeah, both those sound like kind of party nights. Maybe you haven't been to a show in a couple of years. Yeah, it's time to one. have fun. Yeah. Good to see Blossom opening things up again. Mm-hmm. That's when that'll be Thursday, June the 16th. All right, Frankie, okay, before we move on, a couple of pieces of news. Dolly Parton announced that she has opted out. She said she's not a rock and roller, although she's still at age 80, I guess. Uh, would like to work on a rock and roll album sometime. Her husband likes rock and roll, she said. She was fourth in the fan voting this year, somehow, um, but she said she's not worthy of induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so she has taken her name out of consideration. Another piece of news, Jackson Brown just announced he'll be coming to the MGM Center stage in Northfield Park Saturday, June 25th. That's just before he takes off on a worldwide tour with his pal James Taylor. So Jackson Brown will be performing alone on Saturday, June 25th, MGM Center stage at Northfield Park. All right, Frank, we've already gone over the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nominees. Not a lot of classic rockers, but let's take a look at the nominees that we think should get in. Oh, absolutely, And I made yeah. a case for Dionne Warwick, um, you know, back in Season 4 when we were going over our two in categories. This is her second straight nomination. I think she should get in. She sold more than 100 million records worldwide. Uh, that's a lot of... That's a lot of do-re-mi there. <laughs> Holy cow. I didn't ever realize She was that. also very good on the Psychic Friends Network, remember? That's, that's true. That, that alone. That, that she was. <laughs> but she worked with Burt Backrack and Hal David with mm-hmm. all those hits. Then had her second career, if you will, with uh, music with uh, Barry Manilow, Deja Vu, and, yes. which she produced. 
Then her, like her third generation of career was the work with Barry Gibb with Heartbreaker in the early 80s. The early 80s, yeah. And she reinvented herself those comebacks, uh, like four yeah. years later or three years later with uh, That's What Friends Are For. Yeah, and, you know, she kind of gets credit for that one. It's kind of odd. I, I, you know, I know that there were three or four of them in there, but she, yeah. when you think of that, it's almost always a Dionne Warwick song. Grammy Hall of Famer, Hollywood Walk of Fame, R&B Music Hall of Fame, and the Apollo Theater Hall of Fame. And touched all the bases there. Sure. Not only a great singer, she's just a, a really nice lady. Perform- you know, she had some troubles with finances, had to declare bankruptcy and whatever. Ten top ten hits, dozens of singles, two number ones, ranks as one of the 40 biggest hit makers between 1955 and 1999. 56 of her singles made the Hot 100 wow. in a 36-year sp- stretch. And it's also the cousin of Whitney Houston. That's right. Yes. So who's also in the Rock Hall. Mm-hmm. So I think Dionne Warwick's time has come. Gotcha. Who do you have? Well, I've got uh, another female, uh, speaking of diversity, uh, Pat Benatar. Now, it's hard to think of the 80s without thinking of Pat Benatar. She came on the scene in late 1979 with her first release, In the Heat of the Night, which went platinum and spawned the hits I Need a Lover, the John Mellencamp tune, and Heartbreaker, another cover, and We Live for Love, which was written by her future husband, Neil Gerardo. Geraldo. Geraldo. <laughs> Crimes of Passion went to number two in 1980 and found her taking much more of the songwriting duties. And she was just in time for MTV, her groundbreaking videos taking off and launching the new, r- new channel with her. It was Pat's You Better Run that was the first ever female video played on MTV. Her haul for the 80s, six platinum, two gold mm. albums, and 15 top 40 singles. And it's hard to measure the influence she had on so many women who followed her into rock music with her powerful vocals and the kind of tough-as-nails attitude. Vocals, you say? Well, she won the Grammy Award for Best Female Rock Vocal and unheard of four years in a row. Wow. Quite simply, one cannot overestimate how much she meant to rock and roll in general and women in rock in particular. On her second nomination, it's time to induct Pat into the Hall of Fame. Was she like four feet ten or something? What a voice. She's, yeah. I mean, she can't be five foot tall. (laughs) She's a little tiny thing. Still touring these days. And And she still is out there touring with her husband, Neil. And uh, they kind of uh, co-write a lot of stuff. And uh, she's still making new music and still... Still on tour. I'll tell you, what a rocker. Um, I thought she had a better rock and roll type of voice than Stevie Nicks did. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. she was just made for the MTV 80s generation. Oh, definitely, yeah. Uh, and you can just close your eyes and think of, uh, um, uh, what's the one? we are young. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and she's doing the and dance. And, yeah. Yeah. So I think that she should get in. One of these, Some of these artists, like, I thought... She was already in. Exactly. You know, we'll get to some I, of these uh, next one week. Of, one of the ones I would have definitely thought would have been in, yeah. and I kind of just missed it, was Pat Benatar. But, and I actually had to go back and check it and make sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, she's got my vote. I'd love to have her in, and I'm sure she would love to be inducted still. Some people kind of, like Todd Rundgren, ah, poo-poo, no big deal. But I think she'd be happy to get in. Oh, I think so, too. Uh, and I think that she'd put on a, a great show. She's just the kind of thing the thing that the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame needs, you know? Right. Younger kind of inductees that are singing their own tunes. Somebody's not, who's not, you know, coming out with a cane. Yeah, you were talking (laughs) about how it might be turning into a Kennedy Center Honors. I know the uh, Rock Hall wants it to be more of a iHeart music festival thing, the red carpet and Mm -hmm. the two-day show or whatever. Hopefully not, but... So Pat Benatar certainly gets my vote. She should get in. I thought she was already in. What do you think? I did too, definitely. Absolutely. That leads us to one category that just kind of popped into my mind last week. I thought I'd bring it up this week. Pleasant surprises. Mm-hmm. Who were you pleasantly surprised to see? I'll tell you who mine was. It was 2014. I didn't really pay attention too much if Todd Rundgren or Chicago or something back then weren't on the list of nominees. I like tuned out. I might, I've, I might I've have caught that. the awards. I've done that myself. But Cat Stevens was inducted in 2014. I thought, no, that's awesome. I love Cat Stevens. What mm-hmm. a great voice. And as you know, he was one of our featured artists a while back. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But his voice was not taxed a lot like Steve Perry's or somebody like that. Um, but certainly over the years without him performing a lot, his voice is still the same. 
just a little older, but it's not raspy. It's not, you know, it's all there. And boy, did he put on a a good performance. They usually sing three songs and I guess edit down one of them or something. Father and Son was one of them. I think Peace Train. I was just, had a big smile on my face when I saw Cat Stevens the night of the inductions. I'm watching that back. You have a good one too. It wasn't too long ago either, was it? Yeah. um, This is one that I thought might not happen. Uh, Not because they're not worthy, because they certainly are. Um, but the Doobie Brothers. Now, I could make an argument for the original Tom Johnson group based on only what they did. Now, see the album Best of the Doobies, which does a great job of summing that up. Then I could turn around and make a case for the Michael McDonald years, perfectly encapsulated by Best of the Doobies 2. The thing that worried me was whether the group had a rabid enough following able to push them kind of over the finish line. Maybe because they had two so different periods, I've never really heard anybody say, the Doobie Brothers are my favorite band, either in person, in the media, or even on social platforms. It was always, yeah, I like them, or yeah, they're a good band, that kind of thing, which is kind of how I feel about them. So I was very glad when the news came down that they were part of the 2020 induction class. As somebody has seen them twice in concert, And yes, once with Michael and once with Tom, (laughs) I can tell you they are truly deserving. Yeah, and the 50th, now 51st anniversary tour. Remember last year's concert at Blossom had to be postponed because one of the crew members uh, took ill with COVID. They're back now on July the 12th, Tuesday night at Blossom. I'm sure it's going to be a good show. And that should be a heck of a show. Uh, If you haven't seen them, uh, you're going to have a chance to see really both parts of the doobies put together and it should be a heck of a heck of a good time it'll be fun and that's one of those shows you'll come out like i was with james taylor and jackson brown a year ago thoroughly entertained smile on your face oh sure to face that traffic coming home from blossom <laughs> <laughs> download discovery time frankie free to decide by the cranberries is mine I love that song. I love the Cranberries. Dolores O'Riordan, who passed away a few years ago. Yeah. Man, she was such a... I love the Cranberries. Right out of the 90s, the, the Irish rock band. Uh, it comes from their album, To the Faithful Departed. It's the second single release from July of 1996. That year, I was getting into some of that alternative stuff. Space Hog and Magna Pop. Mm-hmm. Stuff that was uh, playing on MMS. Okay. And uh, The End, 107.9. And I, so I remember The End. Excellent radio Pretty good stations mm-hmm. for all your, your alternative stuff. It wasn't that, that outdated. I was in my thir- mid-30s. So, sure. you know, Dishwalla and, and groups like that I was listening to. And The Cranberries were one of them. did better in the alternative charts here, did the album. Uh, in Canada and Iceland, it did very, very well. Dolores passed away at age 46, four years ago. It's mm. too bad. In 1995, though, Dolores was listed as one of the richest women in the UK at only age 24. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. At one point, she was even worth an estimated 66 million U.S. dollars. That's quite a, quite a worth. So the death was ruled an accidental drowning in a bath following sedation by alcohol intoxication. It happens. But that song, Free to Decide, I love that song. It's up-tempo. I think you're really, really going to like it. The whole album's great, too. The Faithful Departed. It's the Cranberries from 1996, Free to Decide. Sounds like a good one. You got a good one, too. I was going to choose. Yeah, from uh, beautiful 1979, uh, Jean-Luc Ponty. Jean-Luc Ponty. Uh, He of the jazz violin. Oh, I love that. And A Taste for Passion, which was an album that he put out that year. Yes, it was. Now, although this is a jazz album, don't 
scooped out the rock chops of Jean-Luc. Yes, that's him playing on Zappa's late-night classics like Dynamo Hum and Don't Eat the Yellow Snow. Wow. And also on Elton's Honky Chateau album. I did not know that. This perfect piece of jazz fusion actually hit number 54 on the pop album charts and garnered some FM airplay. The musicianship is second to none with Jean-Luc's otherworldly soloing and keyboards by Maynard Ferguson alumni Alan Zavad. For years, it's been my go-to CD at bedtime. It's a beautiful wall of sound and it relaxes you without any kind of over-the-top vocalizing. And for a jazz album, I think you'll enjoy the surprisingly beautiful melodies. I can conjure those songs up in my mind right now. That was one of the the only rock instrumental jazz fusion artists that we played at ACRM. Shout out to right. Joe Regis, who was our music director, who brought this album in, A Taste for Passion, in 1979, in the fall. Perfect time of year, kind of like Al Stewart, Alan Parsons. That song and that album, the, the album came out in 1979. We played the heck out of it. I loved it. Anything from that that album I was playing on our station as long as it was one of the three or four recommended cuts. Right. And it, the music really hypnotizes you. It, it does. really does. I can see it right now. Jean-Luc's got that uh, dark blue violin. Yeah. <laughs> electric, electrified. It was really good. All you had to do is look at the album cover and... You have to listen to it. <laughs> you do. You do. And once you do, you're transported into a different place. That's right. Great for going to sleep because it's instrumental. Uh, great for just popping on the turntable, which I still do. I have that album. As soon as Joe said to play it, I went out and bought it on my own, which was saying something because I didn't buy a lot of albums at that time of my college career. I didn't have a lot of money. And heck, anything I wanted to listen to, I would play at the radio station. One eight wonder time, Frankie. Remember Frank Stallone? Not Sly Stallone, his brother, but Frank. No, definitely. I do remember Frank Stallone, yeah. Remember the follow-up to Saturday Night Fever called Stayin' Alive, starring John Travolta? Sure. Well, Frank is Sly's brother. The song Far From Over, released for that movie, was uh, put out in mid-July of 83. I can think about it right now. for Best Original Song, up against Barbara Streisand and Yentl, good tune, weird movie, and Maniac by Michael Cimbella. <laughs> those those classic soundtracks of, from the 80s, I mean, yeah, not to nothing mention, like them. Not to mention Flashdance, What a Feeling by Irene Cara, which won the award in that category. Sure. Far From Over peaked at number 10 in September of 83. Frank did not chart again, yet years later he had a boxing match versus Geraldo Rivera. And Howard Stern. And why not? And why not? <laughs> Geraldo lives in Cleveland now. Uh, Frank won the bout, by the way. There's a documentary released 
streaming early last year called Stallone, colon, Frank. It documented Frank's life and career. It features Geraldo, Sly Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Billy Zane. Remember him from Titanic? Oh, yeah, the, the bad guy. Yeah, the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And many others. It only received 56, though, on Rotten Tomatoes scale. Best Instrumentals, you got a good one. It comes from the album A Taste for Passion. Yeah, um, I was going to save this one, but boy, when uh, it came up that we were doing the uh, I, the uh, Taste for Passion, well, yeah. I had to do this as the Otherwise, I would right? I would have slipped it in myself. Absolutely. To me, this is the highlight of the album A Taste for Passion and a rare jazz tune released as a pop single, yeah, believe it or not. I remember that. Uh, Beach Girl sounds uncannily like a non-vocal version of the Steely Dan tune, Peg. This is one that'll stay with you even after just one listening. So I highly recommend you download this song and the album. I love that song. It's a great song, and uh, he plays just a fantastic solo on that. Again, if you're into musicianship, try this album. Just try it out. Yeah, great late 70s music. Mm -hmm. Cliff Nobles and Company, late 60s music for me. A couple of great instrumentals. This is why I like this segment so much. Remember the horse? I love the horse. Number two, for three weeks in the early summer of 68, the Mobile, Alabama native moved to Philadelphia in 1965. Part of that Philadelphia sound. R&B band leader and singer featured the horn section of what would become M- MFSB. That's cool. Didn't realize. Yeah, simply an inter- instrumental version of the A side. Now Cliff did not play on this song at all, but it caught on and sold more than three million copies in just three months after its release. Kept out of the top spot by a guy named Herb Alpert. Nice. And this guy's in love with you. Mm-hmm. Which was uh, number one, late June, early summer, 1968. Great year for music, too, wasn't it? I know there's so much tumult going on. It sure was. And anyone, and I do mean anyone, that played in a marching band in the early 70s had that arrangement. We all had the same arrangement. Artists who debuted at number one or number two. We have Gary Wright this week. You know, he had number two right off the bat with Dreamweaver. It spent three weeks there in 76. The former member of the band Spooky Tooth and had this top five hit called Dreamweaver early in that year, only kept out of the number one spot by December 1963, and then Disco Lady. 
Okay. Late March, early April of 76. Dreamweaver, I like, but not as much as his follow-up, Love is Alive, which also hit number two. And that's another great song. And it's funny how it seemed like in the 70s and early 80s, almost every year you had somebody like that, like a Gary Wright or a Jerry Rafferty or a Christopher Cross. Walter Egan, yeah. Yeah, somebody that would have, you know, a couple come up with a couple of great songs on an album. Everybody bought it, and then they seemed to just disappear. summer of 76 it was kept out of the top spot by first kiss and say goodbye manhattan's that's right and then don't go breaking my heart which was breaking your heart listening to elton john and kiki d at the time yeah that was the start of the slide (laughs) so gary hit number two both times and his follow-up to those top five hits was a song called made to love you which never made it out of the 70s within the billboard hot 100 then he was kind of done and then he was done yeah Rock releases the week of March 14th. Some good ones. One of your favorites, Earth, Wind, and Fire, on uh, March 15th, 1975, released. That's the way of the world. Oh, what a beautiful album! Yeah, Asia, the uh, self-titled, the supergroup Asia, 1982, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Jethro Tull released Aqualung. Katie Lied by Steely Dan, one of our favorites. Oh, absolutely. That was 1975. America released Hearts in uh, spring of 75 in March. That had Sister Golden Hair on it and Daisy Jane. Oh, that's right. They're already at the top of the charts with Lonely People. Mm -hmm. Taken to the Streets, that was the first Michael McDonald effort for the Doobies in 1976. And on March 17th, 1972, America came out with their self-titled album. Okay. And that was the one with Horse With No Name. Sure. And I Need You. Absolutely. Good stuff there. Bad Company and Desolation Angels in 1979. part of our more from category, you know, not too long ago. Absolutely. And that had rock and roll fantasy on it. Right. That was pretty much it for them after that, wasn't it? Exactly. Spotlight year, Frankie, we're bringing it back, not in any particular order this time around, since the Monterey Pop Festival is our theme, 1967. And we had some breakout artists that year, Lulu. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, to serve to with serve love. love. Yeah, the Buckinghams, the Chicago group. I love them. Don't you care? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Susan, kind of a drag. Jefferson Airplane, Procol Harum. We made a case for them to be in the Rock Hall. Absolutely, yes. Fifth Dimension, one of my favorites of all time. Mm-hmm. Bee Gees, same here. You know, another one. Gary Puckett, love Gary Puckett. Classics Four. They released Spooky in December, uh, the year before. Linda Ronstadt's Different Drum, written by Michael Nesmith. That's right. And and le- she released, was yeah. just starting her career, and uh, boy, we had no idea what would happen there. Right, no, no <laughs> idea.
That song was released in mid-November of 67, so it qualifies. And Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe. Absolutely. That was a huge song. That Wasn't that the uh, album that knocked out Sgt. Pepper's from the top spot? I, I think, believe you're right, I yes. think it only lasted one week, and then it was back to Sgt. Pepper's or Magical Mystery Tour or something. Something, yes. So you got some good albums for me, don't you? Yeah. It was uh, quite a year, and 67 is kind of known as the year where the album really kind of took shape and really kind of uh, went to the forefront uh, over singles yeah. at that point. Like you could really listen to an album, sure. the whole thing all the way through. And it would hold up. Yeah. Number five, Disraeli Gears by Cream. This album can be found on just about every critic's list of great albums. With songs like Sunshine of Your Love, Strange Brew, and Tales of Brave Ulysses, you can see why. It also contains one of my favorite song titles of all time, Slutterbur, <laughs> which stands for She Walks Like a Bearded Lady. Oh, wow. Number four, Are You Experienced by Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix. In a whirlwind seven months in 1967, Jimi released his, this first album, made his U.S. concert debut at, with a literally flammable appearance at Monterey Pop, and released Axis Bold as Love. And yes, he was that good. Yeah, we'll do Hendrix. He'll be a featured artist uh, pretty soon, one of these seasons, very soon. Definitely. Um, number three was The Doors by The Doors. Wow. There's no doubting the meaning in songs like Light My Fire, <laughs> Break On Through, or 20th Century Fox, especially with Jim Morrison as the lead singer. And I got yelled at more than once for, pl- <laughs> for playing the 12-minute gothic rock the end. Well, I hope you don't yell at me or my listener, our listeners, because the Doors were breakout artists I forgot to mention in our breakout artist segment just a second ago. That's right. You know the day destroys the night. Night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Chased our pleasures here, dug our treasures there. But can you still recall the time we cried? Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. Number two, yes, more of the monkeys wow. by the monkeys. Uh, and this is the album that started out. Their incredible year. Yeah. Along with their debut album, The Monkees spent 29 weeks at number one. It's unbelievable. This one album went five times platinum, and was their first was the first pop rock album to be the best selling album of a year in the U.S. Yeah. Interesting, then. Boy, there's some good songs on that album. That's right. Goodness gracious. And but what else could be number one? But Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. I thought you were going to forget Beatles. it, Frankie. No. <laughs> Well, if any band could upstage the Monkees, it was the Beatles. And it took their magnum opus to do it. There's very little I can add than to say that this may be the most important album of all time. Important in that it changed the way musicians wrote music, how they recorded it, and how we fans listened to it. I like this segment, Frankie. Psychedelic versus Pop. We're into August 17th, 1968. Mm-hmm. Get a load of these songs. Number 10, 9, 8, and 7 on the Billboard Hot 100. Number 10 was Donovan, Hurdy Gurdy Man. Then we had Hugh Masekela's Grazing in the Grass at number 9. And then back to Psychedelic, if you will. Cream, Sunshine of Your Love. Number 7 was The Vogues and Turn Around, Look at Me. Oh, that was One a psychedelic, real one pop, psychedelic, and then pop. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine playing that on the radio station, which I'm sure Wixie did? Oh, absolutely. Cream, Sunshine of Your Love, and followed by Turn Around, Look at Me by The Vogue. Yeah, and you could hear that in the same 15, 20-minute block. Yep. Thrown like a star in my vice, I opened my eyes to take a peek. To find that I was by the sea, gazing with tranquility. Then 
featured artist time, Frankie. We talked about um, Woodstock in mm-hmm. the past. We talked about the Gimme Shelter, the Altamont Speedway ra- sure. uh, Raceway. Mm-hmm. Monterey Pop Festival, June 16th to the 18th, 1967. This was back before Woodstock and, you know, Newport Jazz Festival. So things were a little lighter, weren't they? Absolutely. This was supposed to be a free concert, and it was. Smaller venue, not like Woodstock, which got way out of control, right? Planned by John Phillips of Mamas and Papas. Beach Boys were in on the planning as well, but they didn't, uh, re- they didn't attend for various reasons. Draft and whatever, they didn't want to, I guess they just didn't want to perform. Funny. Record producer Lou Adler, we've talked about him many times, the Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. Sure. Uh, friend to Jack Nicholson, used to hang out with him at Laker Games. Of course, Lou produced uh, Tapestry and many, many other great albums. And Derek Taylor, who was a publicist for The Birds, The Beach Boys, The Mamas and Papas, before heading up publicity for Apple Records in 1968. I didn't realize that. So these guys were all getting together. They wanted to do something. If you've seen the uh, concert promo posters, it's right out of the 60s. It's so perfect. Mm -hmm. Most of the artists performed for free, except for Ravi Shankar, who got a little money for it, but he gave an afternoon-long performance. Yes, yes. All the acts averaged around 40 minutes for each of their sets. The Who, though, only played 26 minutes. The songs were shorter back then, you know, my Absolutely. generation, Absolutely, and you're right, um, especially the Who songs, because most of theirs were those old yeah. English singles. Like Anytime, anywhere, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I can see for miles. Now, if they had had out uh, Won't Get Fooled Again, that would have added seven minutes and some odd seconds to it, right? That exactly. Been close to a 40-minute set. Or Tommy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> The performers on Friday started out with, get this, the association, which made the Doors upset because the Doors were not invited, I suppose, and they wondered why the association was there kicking things off and not them. I think if you want to make it kind of like we do with our show, you kind of make it for a little bit for everyone. I think for that time, that was a great group to have. Never My Love, Along Comes Mary, Everything That Touches You. Windy. Windy. Ah. Cherish. Great stuff. So they started it, followed by Lou Rawls, mm-hmm. Johnny Rivers, Eric Burden and the favorites. Animals, Simon and Garfunkel. Great f- first day, Friday. Yeah, and that's just that's just the Friday with Simon and Garfunkel. You know, wow. And you know, you're going to have Country Joe and the Fish and Al Cooper and the Butterfield Blues Band the next day. But these guys are all in the 40-minute set. You know you're going to hear quick songs, fun pop songs that you recognize. It's a good way to start the show, sure. I think, the festival. And Saturday afternoon. Can't Heat, Big Brother and the Holding Company, Janis Joplin, Country Joe and the Fish, Al Cooper, so kind of a little more progressive, a little more rock and roll. Yeah. Butterfield Blues Band, Quick Silver Messenger Service. Oh, another great band. Steve Miller. So that was Saturday afternoon, and in the evening, Moby Grape, Hugh Masekela, member from Grayson in the Grass. Yes. The Birds, Laura Nero, Jefferson Airplane. When the truth is found to be Booker T and the MGs, Otis Redding, who had performed for mainly black audiences at that point, but um, he was very well received. Yeah, he, he think he brought down the house, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then Sunday afternoon, we talked about Ravi Shankar. He played the entire afternoon on Sunday. Now, a lot of you uh, probably don't even remember the name, let alone know what he did. He was a sitar player. And you're, I know 
possibly you're thinking, well, you mean like George Harrison on Within You, Without You, or maybe Brian Jones doodling around on Paint It Black? Yeah. Well, not quite. Um, he was a master of the sitar. And the, ones, the song that they show in the movie and his um, last song of his set was called Dun, that's D-H-U-N, mm-hmm. Dadra and Fast Tental. That's the name of it. Say that fast. Now you think, okay, it's just going to be a guy up there noodling around with yeah. some bongo, you know, the, the tom-toms in the background. No, this is 18 minutes that starts off really hypnotically and then adds intensity, speed, more intensity, mm-hmm. more speed, until literally at the end of the whole thing, everybody in the crowd just jumps on their feet and gives them a standing ovation. Wow. And you can see people like, you know, Mickey Dolan's in the crowd. Yeah. Mamas and the Papas and all those people were just dumbfounded. So if you ever get a chance, and I really suggest you do it, download, you don't have to watch the whole movie, although I would suggest that, but if you download this off of uh, YouTube and just take 20 minutes and listen to it, you will not be sorry. Yeah, that documentary film was made and released a year later called Monterey Pop. Mm -hmm. It was selected by the United States National Film Registry, you know, for their archives from the Library of Congress. Apparently, ABC TV, you know, they used to have that movie of the week on Tuesday nights. Yeah, sure. They paid $200,000 for the rights to air that movie, that documentary, but decided not to air it after seeing some of the antics of Jimi Hendrix. Oh, good grief. But it was late 60s. What what they're talking about there is um, Jimi Hendrix, like I said, had a flammable set. Yeah. He literally poured lighter fluid on his guitar and lit it on fire. Now that seems pretty hokey nowadays, but it was a big thing back then. Yeah. In fact, standing in the front row of that concert was a 17-year-old boy named Ed Carafe. Now Carafe had never seen Hendrix, nor had he ever heard any of his music. But he had a camera with him, and there was one shot left on his roll of film. As Hendrix lit his guitar, Kareff took the shot, and it would become one of the most famous images in rock and roll. Isn't that something? Just by complete accident, this guy takes a picture, it becomes, you know, history. But the idea of ABC not, I mean, they easily could have, you know, cut that part out. They I mean, spent good, uh, almost a quarter grief. million dollars of late 60s, early 70s money. Which was a lot of money back then. A ton then. of money. Sure. So uh, we talked about Hendrix. He performed on Sunday afternoon. Get a load of this lineup. Now, Big Brother and the Holding Company came back. Buffalo Springfield. Wow. The Who with their first American appearance. The Dead. Then Jimi Hendrix. Followed by Scott McKenzie. You know, he was all the rage that year. He sure San was. Francisco, wear flowers in your hair. And Mamas and Papas, which makes sense since John Phillips helped put the whole thing together. I don't know which day I'd want to be there the most. I think I'd like them all, Me but too. yeah, it it's would a, it would have been fun, especially on I would think on the Friday night to see you know Simon and Garfunkel. That would have been just great. Price was right too. Absolutely, free. Yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> I'm sure it was a beautiful venue, San Francisco. You know, wine country in Northern California is just beautiful that year. Yeah, not and a when cool. The, and when they show the venue in the movie, you can see that um, it was. It was tailored to this. It wasn't an overflow crowd. Mm -hmm. They didn't have people knocking down fences or that kind of thing. It was a very controlled atmosphere, which made for uh, real music. Now, it was before the tumultuous year of 1968, of course. Yes. The protest of the Vietnam War had uh, begun, but it wasn't as bad as it was in 1969 when Woodstock 
was going on. But this pop festival gave birth to those kind of shows, like the one in Atlanta or Dallas, Woodstock, and then the Gimme Shelter one, too. So Absolutely. Now, the Beach Boys and the Doors were no-shows. But those who declined to be there, the Beatles... Of course. They, had, they were all done already. By that yeah. time, they were done. The Rascals had another gig that weekend. Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band. I think we were okay without them. I don't know that anyone would have recognized their music, to be uh, honest with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I think we had Country Joe and the Fish. That's enough. Yeah. Um, several Motown artists were invited. Barry Gordy said no. He refused to allow any of his acts to appear, even though Smokey Robinson was on the board of directors for the Pop Festival. And that's a real shame because they, I think they really could have uh, given, given them even more crossover appeal. You know, yeah, like if, Otis Redding. Exactly. If they had had Marvin Gaye there, Stevie Wonder. Sure. Perhaps that led to maybe... Or the Temps and the Tops or something that, right. like that. Yeah. Now you can see where Barry Gordy might have been getting just a little heavy-handed in his approach. And so Marvin Gaye and, and groups that jumped out of Motown were maybe thinking, maybe, maybe Barry has a little too much power over us right now. Exactly. And, and they had to when... I mean, these these people naturally, I'm sure, saw the movie and said, we could have been could up have there. Been there. Absolutely. Bob Dylan also declined. That makes sense. You know, he was in his electric stage, and he was just doing, doing other stuff back then. Exactly. I mean, Joe Baez wasn't there either. I think of all the pop festivals from that time, that's the one I would have loved to have been at because I think it was, again, about the music. It was a controlled atmosphere. It wasn't the just crazy stuff that became, of course, of Woodstock and of Altamont. Um, I would have loved to have seen it. And a lot of fun for that weekend. Exactly. Mid-June, maybe a little cool and maybe a little breezy that time of year in San Francisco, perhaps a little misty. Sometimes it gets to be like that in June. Right. Their best weather is in the fall. But it would have been a fun thing to be a part of. Oh, definitely. Monterey Pop Festival, our featured artist to begin uh, well, middle part of season five, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, we're rolling through. And next week, we're going to talk about one of my favorite groups of all time, Marshall Tucker Band. We'll tell that's you how right. they got their name, some of the great tunes, and boy, are they good in concert. So that's next week on Tim Friedman's 70s Rock Conversations. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me. Our rock expert will return next week as we go through some of our fun segments, and we'll bring back a couple of great instrumentals and psychedelic versus pop, and we'll hit that Southern Rock Part 3. Next week we had Poco already, which gave birth, you know, started off uh, the folk rock thing in the late sure. 60s, early 70s. And then, of course, we started, as we should have, with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in our Southern Rock category. This is Tim Friedman. We'll see you next time.